Many companies are just sort of not using any methodology at all or doing some random one or some internal one, which makes it very difficult to hire new people, data scientists, data engineers, machine learning engineers into a project when they have no established way of running those projects. It makes it very difficult to run multiple projects, even within the same organization, if you're all doing it in a different way. And the third thing, of course, it makes it very difficult to buy services and buy products from companies who, who will produce things that don't comply with any methodology think big and start big and then projects will fail. And we're like, well, yes, because you're supposed to think about the big picture, but start small and make sure that, you know, you're going to get a quick win so that you can continue to get buy-in. Uh, you know, maybe you're going to start with a small budget, a small team, and then you can move forward from there. Hey folks, I'm Alex Petros and welcome to the Applied AI pod. Today, we virtually sit down with Cognilitica's Kathleen Walsh, Managing Partner and Principal Analyst, and Ronald Schmelzer, Managing Partner and Principal Analyst. Ron and Kathleen are your AI Today podcast show hosts as well. Briefly, Kathleen is a serial entrepreneur, savvy marketeer, and tech industry connector, and Ron is an expert in AI, machine learning, enterprise architecture, venture capital, startup, and entrepreneurial ecosystems and more. I tell you, you're gonna have so much fun. With both Kathleen and Ron, let the AI fun begin. This episode is brought to you by the BAI Europe's AI Pre-Accelerator on the mission to provide for and help AI startups grow the right way. Hurry up, let's call for AI startups to apply to the AI Pre-Accelerator where AI mentors cover 10 AI segments know-how with no BS, info that cannot be googled, all without presentations. Apply to bookrest.ai. We had a podcast swap with AI Today recently, uh, where we briefly touched based on some common themes, interesting insights shared on this podcast show, Apply the AI Pod. Uh, we talked about AI adoption, one thing that has surprised me in regards to AI from various interviews, the future of AI in general, its applications on, on organizations and beyond. We had a blast. I mean, I dropped so many things I could have talked for hours. All topics were right up my street. If you want to hear the episode we recorded for AI Today, there's a link back and a reference on this episode's notes. Bonus, they have more than 200 episodes, so there's a good chance you'll find other interesting topics too. Uh, right, enough of me talking. We'd love to have you guys, uh, Kathleen, Ron, introduce yourselves to our listeners. Tell us a little bit of your background and why did you start your podcast and whom and how does the podcast help? Uh, thank you so much for for jumping on the on the podcast show with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. We're so excited to be on your podcast, and we were excited for the podcast swap as well. So I'll go ahead and get started. I'm Kathleen Walsh. I'm a managing partner and principal analyst at Cognolytica. Cognolytica is an AI focused research advisory and education firm. So we've been around for a number of years now, and we focus on, you know, um, different aspects of how AI, so for our podcast, our AI Today podcast, we focus on different aspects of how AI is being applied today. And at Cognolytica, we have, um, you know, we cover a wide range of different industries. We cover about 20,000 vendors in the AI space. And that ranges because, you know, artificial intelligence, the great thing about it is that it really does touch just about every single industry. And so we cover just about every single industry from automotive, retail, uh, consumer packaged goods, 
healthcare, insurance, banking, finance, you name it. And we also have a public sector uh, focus as well. So we're based in the United States. So we, um, you know, talk to a lot of different federal, state and local agencies. But we also have an international audience as well. And we talk to a lot of different uh, international governments. We've interviewed some of those folks on our podcast. We've had uh, folks from Hungary and we've had folks from Australia. We have an upcoming episode with the CDO of the Scottish government. And we also have talked to a number of people in the U.S. federal agencies as well. A bit of a background about myself, and then Ron can definitely introduce himself and a little bit more about Cognolytica and AI today as well. Um, I started my career in marketing. I worked for a very large organization called Heart Hanks, and I specifically focused on their Bed Bath & Beyond account. That got me really involved with data, as you can imagine. You know, I got to see um, how companies manage data uh, and you know, some of the issues with data as well. We always talk about how data is is messy, data constantly changes, and I got to experience that firsthand and really loved it. From there, I founded a startup with my husband, actually, and it was uh, connecting service providers and customers. I realized that that was, um, you know, it was it was becoming a crowded space. I did that back in about 2012. That was when things were, were starting to take off there in that wave of startups. And we really were going to have to raise a lot of venture funding for it and decided, well, you know, that wasn't the route we wanted to go at this time. So the company... Uh, went under. But during that time, I actually met Ron and joined him with Tech Breakfast. And Tech Breakfast is, um, it was it's mostly in the United States, but we grew that community to, you know, it's 50,000 plus, and it's a demo, a technology demo stage where people can come and showcase their technology. Uh, and I, what I really enjoyed about that was that we got to hear a lot a lot of different, you know, pitches and ideas. It was from companies, a wide range of companies. So many of them were startups. Some of them were incredibly small and new, just starting out. And some of them were more established. And then we did have large organizations there as well. You know, if they had a new product, we had Capital One, Verizon, AOL, Microsoft. They would come and present, you know, new Booz Allen, different things that they were doing. So you got, we got to hear a wide range of, uh, you know, different pitches and, and people sharing their ideas and products. From that, around 2016, we really started to see voice um, and voice assistance become, you know, quite hot. It was really starting to take off. And that's what inspired us, actually, to start Cognolytica. Uh, we expanded beyond voice, and now we cover all aspects of artificial intelligence. We, have, we talk a lot about the seven patterns of AI, because when one person's talking about AI, and another person's talking about AI, you may not be talking about the same thing. So the conversational pattern is just one of the seven patterns of AI. There's also recognition, hyperpersonalization, patterns and anomalies, predictive analytics, autonomous, goal-driven systems as well. So, um, you know, we've we've been running Cognolytica for quite some time, and actually the podcast has been going on for just as long. So you mentioned we have over 200 episodes. We've had some incredible guests on the podcast, and we've also uh, had an education series, a use case series. We talk about how to actually implement artificial intelligence. What are the struggles right now that people are dealing with, and how are they overcoming that? 
Yes, so hi, I'm Ron Schmelzer. I'm a managing partner and principal analyst here at Cognolytica as well. And yeah, I mean, basically what Kathleen was saying is we started our Cognolytica AI-focused research advisory and education firm with the podcast. We actually started it pretty much the same day uh, that we started well over four years ago. And the focus of our podcast, the AI Today podcast, is looking at the challenges and struggles of those who are actually trying to put AI into practice today. So it's not, we, we, we love the research, we love what's the possibilities of AI, we love talking about all the other concerns and considerations, but the focus on our podcast is what can we do with AI today? And as you can imagine, the realities of artificial intelligence and putting that into practice, well, it's not talked about as much as the sort of science fiction claims and all the, the promises and all the things that we hear about. You hear about all these things about IBM Watson was planning on doing all these things from 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17. But here we are in 2021, you don't hear as much about all the failures <laughs> the technology has had because people are not as vocal about the challenges as they are about all the things that they're hoping uh, will happen, the hype, right? So on the AI Today podcast, we have been focusing for the last four years on these topics of what are people actually doing? And as Kathleen mentioned, interviews with uh, enterprises and public sector agencies and individuals and uh, forward-thinking companies and, and organizations of all types. Um, and so that has been the focus of the AI Today podcast uh, for the last four years. Now, by way of introduction, I mean, I've actually been involved with AI for quite a many years. When I went to MIT, my undergraduate advisor back in the 90s was Rodney Brooks, who, as you may know, is a well-known robotics and AI researcher. Uh, founder of many uh, companies himself. And um, soon after that, I actually started one of the first online commerce companies in the, the late uh, or mid 90s during the dot com boom uh, called Virtue Mall. And that basically grew and then ended up being acquired by a public company. And then basically started an analyst firm focused on service oriented architecture and enterprise architecture. Uh, for, for our audience. And that actually grew pretty big as well and got acquired in 2011. Uh, I was looking to start my next software company and started uh, Tech Breakfast, as Kathleen mentioned, as a way of really seeing what is happening in the tech ecosystems across the world, starting from the Baltimore and D.C. region and expanding to New York and Austin, Texas and Silicon Valley and Raleigh-Durham and up and down the East Coast and everywhere in between. And um, Ended up becoming one of the judges, along with Kathleen, for the South by South Innovation Awards, South by Southwest Innovation Awards. As Kathleen mentioned, over 50,000 plus members. The, the key word that I was missing there, she said 50,000 plus, she meant members. <laughs> Lots of people were participating. And really, the focus of that was on the early stages, the, the uh, entrepreneurs who were trying to make something happen. And that's actually where we started to see this this attention for AI. And that's what got our, actually, that is what got our attention. It wasn't just that AI, because as you know, AI has been around for decades, been around since the beginnings of computing and even precedes the beginnings of computing. It's been around for such a long time that it's not, AI itself is not an evolution of computing technology. You can actually make a very strong argument that computing is an evolution of artificial intelligence rather than the vice versa, you know, trying to make systems intelligent really helped us develop the ideas of computing. Turing with his Turing test was also the Turing machine, you know, and Norbert Wiener and all these are early computing folks, the development of programming languages like Lisp back in the 50s and 60s. So um, just, I think, a long-winded way of saying that, you know, we arrived here 
uh, with AI because of its promise and and the 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 ideas of what we can do with intelligent machines, but kind of where we have always been focused at Cognolytica and with AI today has been on the practicalities of making this work. Because while we love the science fiction, in order for this to stick around and be around for another 50, 60 years and providing progress, we need to have some practical implementations and applications of AI. This is so exciting, Ron, Kathleen. I, I think we have a horizontal perspective uh, and we could imagine the possibilities and avenues of picking your brains right now. We are under such privilege. And um, you mentioned the Turing test, Ron. Uh, makes me think and makes me wonder, is the Turing test still relevant for, for the times we're living, for AI today, for example? You know, that is a really good question. <laughs> Especially if you look at sort of the power of transformer technology and you look at GPT-3 and others, you give it just a small prompt and you can get paragraphs of uh, what would seemingly relevant uh, text. And we have uh, conversational assistants that can do a decent job, although not a perfect job, of, of back and forth uh, conversational passes. And it's quite possible that the Turing test, as, as it was originally you know, envisioned, which is sort of like the, uh, you know, passing the, the the comments behind the, you know, the closed curtain and not knowing if it's a machine or a human responding. That may be obviously too simplistic, I think, to as real assessment of, of kind of intelligent machines, you know, as sort of like the litmus test of is the intelligent machine intelligent. We actually talked about this in one of our podcasts um, back when Google's duplex demo came out. I think it was now a couple of years ago, maybe it goes back to 2018, maybe. Uh, where they demonstrated using Google Assistant to have this conversation with like a hair salon, I think they did, and then a restaurant, they were making a reservation. And the human on the other end of the line did not know that they were speaking to a bot because the bot introduced all these so-called disfluencies where it was saying, um, and ah, and it, it, it wasn't like, you know, it didn't sound like it was a robotic voice, right? And uh, the argument was made is like, well, wait a second. Did we just cross the Turing test threshold here? Because here we have a situation where a human was not able to discern that they had were talking to a bot. So maybe we're already post-Turing test, but clearly we're not at the phase of intelligent machines because Siri and Alexa and Google, they're all still pretty stupid. So I mean, I don't know, Kathleen, if you wanted to add to that, but but uh, yeah, the Turing test, as far as a relevant test for machine intelligence, may, may, maybe we're, it's time for something else. Exactly. You know, and it is interesting that you brought that up because we've asked that question ourselves. And so from stemming from that, actually in 2018 and 2019, we did voice assistant benchmarks. So we test for, we tested four platforms, um, Alexa, Google Home, Cortana, and Siri, Apple Siri. Um, and we asked them a series of questions and we recorded it. So it's available and everybody can go, um, you know, look at that and you can find it at cognolytica.com, the results if you're interested in checking that out. Uh, and what we found was that, you know, if if we were giving them scores, we, we tested them on a variety of different things. Some of it was common sense and reasoning. Some, some of it was, you know, are, are they able to understand things like jokes? Or if you say, Alexa, it's going to be raining today, should I bring an umbrella? Or how long should I cook a 14-pound turkey? Because in the United States, we eat turkey on Thanksgiving, and that's probably the only day of the year most people eat turkeys, so we're not cooking them very often. Uh, so it's a, it's a question, you know, you're going to want to be asking, and your hands are probably going to be dirty uh, from, you know, cooking. And what we found was that 
especially in the first year, these voice assistants were not able to answer a majority of these questions. They all got a failing grade. The following year, they did get a little bit better, but they still all got failing grades. And so we actually, you know, stopped doing the test because we realized that these machines just are not getting um, as smart as they need to be in order to pass these tests. And we figured it would just be similar results every time. Maybe in a year or two, we can do it again, see if they've gotten better. And who knows, maybe the results will surprise us, but I doubt it. Yeah, that's so wonderful. I'm going to link in the episode's notes the, the link to, to, to what you mentioned, Kathleen. I think it will be easy to jump to the link directly. Uh, it's really exciting. We, we question ourselves this uh, quite a lot about the Turing test and the relevancy of the AI tools nowadays um, and the presence of virtual content in our lives or virtual humans in our lives because now it's a thing. Um, there was a recent news about a virtual human, if I can call a virtual presence a human, um, on Instagram, for example. And it was completely virtual, no human at all, uh, Rosie Graham or something like that. Mm -hmm. And she was able to score 100 promotional deals worthy of uh, a little under $1 million per year, all being a virtual person. So... You know the relevancy of the Turing test, the 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 presence of virtual content and re- virtual presences is more present in our life, and we're consuming it. Yeah, um, I I think this well this this calls a lot of things into into question <laughs> and things to think about. I mean, obviously, don't believe everything you see, don't believe everything you hear. You know, uh, you know. Obviously, if you're in person and you're sitting in front of somebody and you can actually see them with your face, then listen to them with your ears. Then maybe you can believe what they're what you're seeing in front of you. But uh, we're we're at this point where the human is is very easily fooled and cannot really uh, adequately discern between reality and manipulation, right? Whether it's deep fakes or audio manipulation, whether it's text uh, manipulation, you know, Instagram, you know, we're using, as you know, there's that famous website, this person does not exist, completely GAN generated uh, facial images using uh, source images. And and they look really, really good. You have to be, you have to pay attention, but you Mm -hmm. have to invest, you have to actually invest energy, mental energy, to, to, to check whether or not this image is real or not. Most people do not spend any amount of effort doing that. I mean, I, we always, Kathleen and I always talk about it. people are just, you know, naturally lazy and, uh, you know, in terms of, of mental effort, right? You know, people do not want to spend that effort. So if you're just kind of cruising along, you see something posted on social media, you hear something, um, you're not going to spend the effort that it will take to debunk it. And it's, I think it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, in this situation for society to have such easily manipulable uh, media uh, because it calls a lot of things into question. I think from a technology perspective, it's very impressive. Uh (laughs) Exactly. You know, and it also brings into question. So at Cognolytica too, we also cover laws and regulations um, globally and as well as, you know, adoption and AI strategies. So with the laws and regulations specifically, you know, and Ron had mentioned, we talked about Google duplex that was, um, you know, recorded in California, the state of California. And actually there's laws in place that you need to share if you're talking with 
a robot and not talking with a human. And that wasn't disclosed. And that was another reason why people were really up in arms about that uh, demo, because they were fooling people and, you know, we're not following the laws. So, so from a technology standpoint, you can keep pushing the boundaries, keep seeing what's possible. And it's really incredible. But from, you know, those laws and regulations, you need to make sure that you're complying with them. And then this also brings into question, do laws and regulations need to catch up? And when do you create those laws and regulations? You know, do you create them ahead of time so that people have workarounds? <laughs> or do you see how the technology is being used and then create laws and regulations to adapt to how the technology is actually being used? Yeah. This is a good infinite discussion because we have different continents, different perspectives. Uh, definitely something that uh, we can pick your brains uh, on a separate episode. Um, I would like to move us a bit on the methodology side of AI projects because uh, you have so much experience, you know, being uh, exposed and building uh, so much intelligence around AI technologies and AI projects with Cognilytica and, of course, AI Today podcast. Uh, you are exposed to understanding infrastructure, to usage, to adoption, ethics, as uh, we already discussed a bit. Um, so in this process, you experience the role of methodologies for AI projects. Um, and we know that AI and ML projects come with a lot of responsibility, and they are very different from any other software product development. Mm -hmm. um, we, those that work with AI or ML projects, we often like to raise awareness that AI and ML is a team sport. Mm -hmm. So having all this as a context, uh, why it's important to use methodologies in AI projects and what are some best, best practices out there fit for, for AI projects? Yeah, well, I think uh, this is really very important. So methodology, you know, what is methodology? Methodology is the set of processes and standards and practices that you do to accomplish some goal, right? And whether or not you have an established methodology, you're doing something. I mean, obviously, if you're starting a project, it might just be a random methodology. It might be an ad hoc <laughs> one. It may be a bad one. It may be a great one. It may be one that you came up with. It may be one that you got from standard sources. Um, but I think our advocation, our, 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 the thing that we advocate is standard methodologies for data projects, especially advanced data analytics projects, and especially AI and machine learning projects, which are 80 to 90 percent about data, managing data and, and organizing and collecting and cleaning and labeling and doing all these things that we need to do with data. That's the primary thing we're doing. We're trying to basically generate these models that emerge from finding patterns and doing all these things from data, right? Entirely data dependent. And what we found is that, okay, we've now had several decades of experience with AI, but more importantly, we've had roughly five to 10 years of trying to put AI into practice in a wide range of applications, in a wide range of settings, from the largest of companies to the smallest of companies, and probably more concerning is that we're using AI in these really highly critical applications, whether we're using it for medical, for finance, for government applications, even for trivial applications. I'm taking a photo of some blemish on my skin and I want to know if it's cancerous or not. Well, if we're going to build these models, right, and we're, we, we have processes that are completely random, that they're ad hoc, or, or worse, they were not really, we're using a method for building software, but it doesn't take any account into the life cycle of data because data has a life cycle 
AI models don't have a defined start and end. We're continuously iterating. We're dealing with uh, data drift. We're dealing with model drift. We're dealing with all these things. And if you don't have a methodology that deals with the evolution of data and doing things in the right order, you will fail. And that's proven out by the statistics, by the, the facts. Uh, a number of organizations have revealed the high rate of failure for AI projects. And, there, and we actually just did a webinar on this recently. Um, we're happy to share that, where it's like, there's like 10 or so reasons why it's failing, but really the, the primary reason is that people are just are just are applying the technology into in the wrong way. They're basically either trying to tackle a problem that's too hard. They don't have the data that they need for their problem. The data is in the wrong quality. They're not staging the pro the problem properly. There's no reason for the for these systems to fail. So we advocate, and I'm sure Kathleen will get into this shortly, a very specific kind of methodology called CPMAI, which is the Cognitive Project Management for AI methodology, which builds upon CRISPDM which is a methodology that's been around for over 20 years for running data projects. And what we have heard about methodology in general is that organizations, for some reason, are highly lacking in this regard. You could be the largest of companies to the smallest of companies, and many companies are just sort of not using any methodology at all or doing some random one or some internal one, which makes it very difficult to hire new people data scientists, data engineers, machine learning engineers into a project when they have no established way of running those projects, makes it very difficult to run multiple projects, even within the same organization, if you're all doing it in a different way. And the third thing, of course, it makes it very difficult to buy services and buy products from companies who, who will produce things that don't comply with any methodology. So maybe Kathleen, let's talk a little bit about that methodology and sort of sure. dive into it a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I mean, even for teams, you know, if your team is running multiple projects, one maybe after the other or a few months later, and you don't have it written down and you don't have steps in place that you're following, then you're probably not going to follow the same steps twice. And that can be a problem. <laughs> so as Ron mentioned, at Cognolytica, we advocate for CPMAI methodology, which is a best practices methodology for doing AI right. And it's, you know, a foundation of data methodologies, because what we've realized is that you can't run AI projects like application development projects. And if you do, then you're very quickly going to realize that your projects are going to fail because you, you know, you just, you can't run them the same way. Uh, AI projects are all based on data and data is what's most important. So that's why CPMAI is a data-based methodology for doing AI right. And so it starts with business understanding, you know, make sure that you're actually solving a problem. A lot of people, I unfortunately skip this step when they are going about projects. And that can be a major issue because if you're not actually solving a real problem, then why are you doing it? It's also probably not going to get adopted. So you're going to spend all this work, all this time, resources, money, effort on a project that at the end of the day is not going to get adopted. And then from there, then you can move to your data understanding and say, okay, what data sources do I need? How am I going to go about doing uh, you know, data selection, all of that? From there, then you can move to your data preparation and continue to move forward, then model development, iteration, and then actually operationalization of the model so that it gets out in the real world. And it is an iterative 
methodology so that the steps do build on on one another, but that you can, you know, go back to a step if need if needed. So it's really combining the best of, you know, what Chris BM have of agile where it is an iterative methodology. And so we advocate for that. And if your listeners are interested in learning more, I encourage them to go to courses.cognolitica.com. And that's where we have the methodology. They can learn more about it and also sign up for the training and education that we have and certification on it. Wonderful. So uh, CPMAI, um, on the reverse coin now, um, so we've learned about some some approaches to, to methodologies in companies, in the same organization, in startups. Um, but what are some falsehoods of methodologies in AI projects? For example, um, imagine yourself, we are in AI projects, Mythbusters, with Kathleen and Ronald here. Um what did you see that doesn't apply and why uh, or is falsely applied to AI projects because of X reason? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of interesting ones. Um, actually, we have so many. But one of the first ones we talk about is data quantity. And because people people talk about that, they're like, I don't have enough data or I don't have sufficient data to basically you know, build a model for, for, for some particular application. And that's a falsehood because that's, well, like, well, it all depends on what kind of model you're trying to build. If you're trying to build GPT-3 where, where you know, you want to have a general, uh, you know, transformer that can generate text from any sort of prompt text and generate something that's coherent, yeah, you're going to need tons and tons of data. It's going to need to be pretty good quality and don't jam it full of junk, right? But if you're trying to basically do some classifier or some clustering or you're trying to do a bit of predictive analytics... The amount of data really all depends on the scope of the problem you're trying to solve. One, the amount of, of accuracy and precision you, you really do require, right? And to be honest, even choices of things like algorithms and the patterns you're trying to solve. You know, there are many situations where it's like, yeah, I mean, hey, deep learning is awesome. You know, you could do all these crazy things. We can use CNNs and RNNs and LSTMs. And we can do all these great things with, with all these different approaches. But that doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, that it's the best so, uh, choice for, for the particular solution. It may be overly complicated. And as a result of that overcomplication, it may require more data. And, you know, a 97% accuracy rate for, say, a product recommendation algorithm, when I'm saying, okay, I bought a, a tent, you know, give me sort of like the next 10 products I might be interested in. It's like, what is what is what is a few percent difference in, in accuracy really mean if I'm, okay, well, maybe I'm maybe I should have recommended this versus that. But, you know, you can't correlate purchasing behavior anyways, directly to recommendations. What I may specifically want may, dep may depend on things I'm not even telling you about. Maybe, I'm going <laughs> yeah. to you know, uh, you may see me buying a tent, but you don't know that I'm actually going to some stargazing thing with like 20 different people. And the next thing I need is a telescope. How would you know to recommend a telescope to me? You would never know that from looking at my behavior. So, so trying to optimize, so early optimization, early overcomplication really leads people down this path of, I need all this data. I want to solve this big problem. And it's just like, you know, hey, think big, start small and iterate often, right? I mean, that, that's one of the best practices. Exactly. And that's what we always say. We found that, uh, you know, a lot of people don't, don't listen to that. And so they'll think big and start big and then projects will fail. And we're like, well, yes, because you're supposed to think about the big picture, but start small and make sure that, you know, you're going to get a quick win so that you can continue to get buy-in 
uh, you know, maybe you're going to start with a small budget, a small team, and then you can move forward from there. Ron had mentioned data quantity. Another thing that we see is data quality as well. It's one thing to have a lot of data, but it's another thing to have a lot of bad data. Um, so that's another another thing that we see as well. And then also issues around, you know, data collection, data governance, uh, access to data within your organization. I think that, uh, you know, we need to continue to have these discussions because a lot of organizations uh, are not as open with their data as they need to be between groups within the organization. And that can be for a variety of reasons. I know a lot of it's security related. Um, and so they don't want everybody having access to, you know, their data and it can accidentally uh, get misused, things like that. So, you know, I understand there are real concerns with that. And it's not just as easy as saying, okay, open up and give access. But these conversations need to continue to be had. And that's why if you start small, but think big, then you're going to, you know, not need as much data at the beginning. And then you can get some quick wins and then hopefully continue to show the organization the value that you're providing with these uh, AI projects that you're running. Yeah, I just want to add, there's nothing wrong with Bayesian classifiers, nothing wrong with random forests, nothing wrong with support vector machines or any of the things that don't seem to have any of the sexiness applied to them that many of these really fancy uh, algorithms have. And a lot of times they work really well. They require less data. They uh, can be iterated much faster. You don't need a lot of GPUs. You don't need to spend as much money. And, you know, sometimes they get the job done. And at the end of the day, I thought that's what we're trying to do with AI, get the job done. You know, so we're not trying to be proving something to ourselves about a 120 billion neuron network that can do fantastic things. You know, I just want to point out another thing. You know, there are now open source alternatives uh, to GPT-3 that are on the market. You can go consume and One of them is from, I think, Neuron.ai or something like that. And it's like, it's just, you know, this is like 93% or something as good as GPT-3, and it's kind of free, so... You know, I'm just pointing that out there. <laughs> there are alternatives. The GPT-J, right? Yeah, GPT-J. There's actually, I think there might have been one even more uh, recent than that. But yes, that, that that's true. It's part of that whole uh, family. I know they had a GPT-Neuro thing, but there's but the uh, uh, this one's, uh, the GPT-J was better. Uh, and and uh, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely resonate with this. Um, and back on the thing big and start small, uh, definitely. And that reminds me, I uh, know to our listeners, um, the BAI, Europe's AI pre-accelerator, has its call, call for startups and teams open by October 8th. So if you are an AI startup in Europe and want to join an AI pre-accelerator on the concept of think big and start small, uh, apply to the AI pre-accelerator. If you are an individual that wants to join an AI team to work on uh, such AI uh, projects, do apply as well. Um, and um, applications open open by October 8th. Mm -hmm. um, back to our methodologies. Um, you did drop uh, the name of Agile. I've heard it a bit. I think it was Kathleen. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, Agile is a great phenomenon uh, if used in the right way. Uh, what's your experience with Agile? Is it a good framework for AI and ML projects or products? Sure. You know, we touch upon this in our training as well, because I know that Agile is a best practice methodology for teams that are, you know, building products. And we think that Agile is great, but it's, you need to make sure that 
you have a data-centric methodology when you're running AI projects. Because when you, you know, AI projects are about the data. They're not about, you know, adding a, spe- a specific functionality to to whatever it is that you're doing, uh, like an agile project would be. So the, we do have, you know, the iterations in CPM AI, but it's not agile based because we've found that you can't run AI projects that way if you want them to be successful. So Ron can explain that um, a little bit more. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we actually do base, uh, CPMI is based on the fundamental concepts of Agile. So I just want to point that out. I think what we meant to say is that it's not uh, application development Agile-centric. We use the user stories, the scrums, the iterations, all that sort of stuff that's in Agile. It is a little more too. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. I mean, it's- it's, it's in there because you do you want to work on short iterative bursts. You don't want to be doing a three month, four month uh, AI project. You want to be working in these sprints. And so the so the question, of course, is like, well, what what is it? What does let's say you're building a chatbot, right? So Agile would say build towards the user requirements and you know iterate to the user needs and build the user story and all that sort of stuff. And the user will say, I need a chatbot. I'm like, okay, great. Well, the question is, what does the chatbot, what questions does the chatbot need to answer or, or how, what, how does the conversation flow need to happen? And how does that need to happen between one iteration and the next? What may seem like one iteration or one sort of two or two, you know, an epic or whatever uh, within within Agile may actually require 20 or 30 iterations to basically get the model and get the conversational uh, uh, flow to the point where you can answer the scope of the questions that need to be answered. And the question is, well, how do you do those iterations? What do those 20 iterations look like when I'm trying to build the model and evaluate the model and do all the things that I need to do? And that's what CPMEI is about. So these two methodologies, you, could, you can think of them, if speaking to mathematics, mathematicians here, they're orthogonal. They're not, they're not uh, uh, against each other. They're not like two separate methodologies going down the same way. Agile cuts one direction where you're building towards application functionality and you're basically trying to create things that the, that the user wants. And CPMAI cuts the other direction we're basically trying to come, trying to identify the data that we need to basically build the models that will provide the functionality that is required for that particular iteration. And they're basically separate iter- iterations. We have uh, CP- CPMAI iterations that may happen in sync or may not happen in sync with functional iterations. Uh, maybe we're doing more CPMAI iterations. Maybe we're doing less. It all depends, right? And you may have a situation where the user considers the functionality done. They may be like, wait, I built this uh, image recognition system and it works. I don't need any new functionality. The problem is, is that the data continues to drift and the model continues to drift. So even though you might think you're done, like you're in the last iteration, wait a second, we may have 20, 30, 40, 50, an infinite number more of iterations because every time we come back and check on a monthly basis, our performance is changing. So even though the user is saying, I don't need any new functionality, they are correct. You don't need any new functionality. But in order to maintain the level of functionality at the level of performance that you want, we have to keep iterating the data. And this is where companies get stuck because they're like, oh, I didn't allocate any money for that. I didn't allocate a team for that. We just took the whole team away from this project. We took all the data scientists away. And we moved them onto some new project because the Agile Sprint said, start this new thing. And then meanwhile, the people who are running these projects are like, wait a second here. They're gasping for air. This other project was, was left with no data scientists, no data engineers, no machine learning engineers, and the model is starting to fail. 
So you got to pull these people back. It's like, yeah, because because you, they're not thinking in terms of the right methodology. There's the, the data itself has a life cycle that needs to be maintained if you're planning on keeping that model in production. So I need a little, little passion here, but Agile is incredibly important and CPMI is incredibly important. And if you're, if you're running an organization that is building functionality that is data dependent, you need to do both. Perfect. Exactly in this context, I actually build a question because it happens in the real world quite a lot. So we need to repeat it a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, so we know that AI and ML projects and AI and ML, you know, you know generally speaking, is fundamentally experimental. Um, let's talk a bit about how can projects get derailed or fail um, if you don't have a plan in place. Yeah, we see uh, we see many, many, many routes to failure <laughs> without a plan in place. I think the first one, of course, <laughs> is is um, basically not not breaking down the problem far enough. You know, not really sort of moving into smaller iterations. That's why it's the think big, start small, and iterate often. And this is on, honestly, this is the sad story of so many robotics companies. Uh, we sort of track the robotics Deadpool. We're actually about to update our market intelligence on this topic. Uh, we, one of the core aspects of our business is uh, market research, where we track 20,000 uh, vendors in the space, as Kathleen mentioned earlier. And um, unfortunately, the robotics space is just this area where people get into it, and they, I guess they just don't realize how hard robotics, and by robotics, I mean the hardware kind. Uh, obviously, coming from Romania, you have a very successful software robotics firm. That's a whole other situation. <laughs> RPA, vendor, RPA is very successful. And, and as a matter of fact, RPA vendors, they have no trouble raising money, going public, doing all this sort of stuff. I wish the same could be said about the hardware robotics companies, which have trouble raising money. They go out of business because of how hard the physical world is. The physical world is just a much more complicated place. And a lot of times, it, it, you know, it's strange because we're talking about methodology, but it's like... Somebody must have skipped at some point the business understanding question, because a lot of times when I look at Enki that failed or Jibo that failed or the Baxter robots at uh, Rethink Robotics that failed or Mayfield Robotics or, or even even as amazing, I got to say, I'm a little bit of rant here, but amazing as the videos that you see from Boston Dynamics of these robots doing dances and doing parkour and the and their dogs opening doors. We tell them it's like, well, if you really want to make an awesome video, show these robots doing something useful. Make them like uh, do the dishes or paint the walls or mow the lawn or, 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 or you know, deliver packages. Make them do. There's a reason why you're not seeing those videos, because. It's harder to make the robot mow the lawn, on, especially on a hill, than it is to make them dance a choreographed dance. Because what we're seeing is we're seeing sort of the controlled universe of, of the robots in some sort of controlled lab environment. But like, why don't you, why don't you make those robots do parkour in the middle of a, of a shopping mall? You know, let's see how well they do there. <laughs> You know, or, you know, they're, they're, these dogs are opening doors like, OK, have them open doors in a busy school. You know, when all the kids walking around, they're going to be like failing left and right. These dogs will be falling over. So, mm -hmm. I mean, this just goes to show that it's like the, the disconnect bet between the reality and the failure. And this causes so many of these companies to go out of business because because when they when companies actually try to make these work, um, they can't. And, and Boston Dynamics itself as a company has been bouncing from owner to owner to owner. It was like SoftBank. And then I think I forget now who Hitachi Hyundai. might have. Hyundai, something like that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should know this. 
but you know, this is the sad story of robotics. I don't know, Kathleen, maybe you can talk more, but like this, this disconnect is, is, is pretty, pretty real. Yeah. I mean, also for, you know, robotics, those hardware robotics too, they need a lot of money. And so I think that some, maybe some people that go into it don't realize that, although I think a lot in the industry do, um, but it just is hard, you know. <clears throat> and then another thing too, as Ron mentioned, I think that that business understanding people don't spend enough time on that phase and that step and answering specific questions so that they'll just jump forward because they want to move forward with this project and they think it's cool. Come to realize we shouldn't have done it. This is so good. I have so many questions for you, but let me run another one by you. What's the best compliment one can get after building an AI project or system like, hey, we felt it was easy or hey, didn't even tell it's AI based. Oh. What do you think that like the best compliment? Well, the, of course, the best compliment is people who don't even realize that the AI system is adding all that value. I mean, but the thing is, you do want them to realize because if they're not realizing it, then you're not there's some business benefit they're missing. But a lot of times, really, the best AI systems are as you probably actually you have. I've, I've, I've we've listened to your podcast quite quite a bit. There's also some really awesome stuff in the AI applied AI pod augmented intelligence, right? It's not machines doing things on their own autonomously. That's actually a kind of a hard problem anyways, a lot of autonomous solutions. It's when machines and humans are working together where the machines basically are speeding up the humans or, or, or they're taking away. That's actually why, honestly why a lot of RPA has been successful, even though RPA is not AI. RPA is just straight automation where it's doing a repetitive task. It doesn't require any sort of you know adapt, continuous adaptation, right? Even in that situation, the reason why it's successful because a human is like, man, I'm I'm behaving like a robot, and I don't want to behave like a robot. I want to behave like a human, right? And when machines basically take the robotics away from the human, that's when people are so satisfied. They're like, man, I couldn't. It's the best compliment would be like, I couldn't have imagined doing it any other way, or or um, the the why did I do it any other way? Yeah, sort of the you know the the best compliment actually going to add, you know, when it's just easy to use, I think that that can be the best compliment because, you know, if, if it's working with that augmented intelligence where you're working side by side, or it actually is doing something maybe in, in, you know, situations where it replaces the human or makes their job easier, then that's really, I think the best compliment that you can get where it frees up people to actually spend time on the job that they were hired for. And, you know, not, those menial tasks that need to get done, but really could be done by somebody that, you know, isn't highly qualified in different areas. And they're doing it, you know, data entry, for example, for lawyers. I, I don't think that that's really what they want to do. They want to be able to, to, you know, practice law. So if you have a tool or a technology, artificial intelligence in this case, that can help them, then that's, you know, I think at the end of the day, what they want probably is one of the best compliments that you can get if you build a project. Mm -hmm. I just want to say, by the way, I, I did a quick check and yes, it's the GPTJ6B model that is Eleuthera's, uh, Eleuthera AI's uh, model. And I was, I guess I was looking through, there's a, a, a company called Neuro that basically makes these models available through a hub. So I got a little tripped up there, but, but you're, you are correct on that. So just for the listeners, <laughs> I just was checking while we were back here. Uh, so they, so we, we say the right thing, uh, make it work. 
Perfect is perfect. Um, yeah, we work with ML projects. Accuracy is one of the key metrics. So we need to be accurate about what we say indeed. <laughs> one more question for you guys, because it's fun. Mm-hmm. Is deep learning the end of AI? I love this question. I love this question. Well, clearly not. I mean, um, you know, we we uh, deep learning is a, has been a fantastic tool, and and uh, I think one of the great things about deep learning is it's actually reinvigorated interest in AI, and it's created so many opportunities to apply machine learning to, I guess, problem areas that we hadn't really thought machine learning was was potentially applicable to. So we want to give deep learning a lot of credit. You know, Jeff Hinton and all the crews and everybody who's been evaluating all the deep learning models and the deep learning model zoo, they deserve a ton of credit for basically, I would say, sort of rekindling uh, the interest in AI and showing the practicality, honestly, of machine learning and so many different applications. The thing though is, of course, we, we reach the limits. We reach the limits of what deep learning is capable of. And we talk about this a lot. There's this thing called the D-I-K-U-W pyramid, which uh, your listeners might be familiar with. And it's really more of a conceptual hierarchy of the increasing value that we get from data. So D is just the core layer of data, which is just the fundamental knowledge uh, building block, which is, you know, you need to have sort of those atoms of, of, of information. The next level is information, where that's the I level, where we're trying to basically connect the dots between the data. And we've done a lot of that through reporting and other sorts of analytics tools that allow us to say, okay, this piece of data is related to that piece of data. You connect them together. Oh, this is a customer purchase transaction. Okay, that makes sense. The next layer up that above that is the K layer. That's the knowledge layer, where we're basically trying to understand the patterns in the information. That's actually where we are today. A lot of machine learning is deriving patterns from information that is itself based on the data, and then using this patterns to provide higher level value analytics and and all these uh, seven patterns of AI that we talk about. But there's a layer above that, and that's understanding. That's the U layer. The understanding tries to say, well, what are these? What do these patterns mean? How do I correlate between this pattern and that pattern? Clearly, we're stuck here because deep learning has that the classical problem of not being applicable across different domains. You know, if I've if I've developed a machine learning model that can do computer vision, I, that model can't do conversation, obviously. You know, if, even even within a specific domain, computer vision. You know, we have transfer learning. We have these approaches where I can extend models, but I ha- the human, unfortunately, the human has to do that work. I can't. You know, the machine itself can't say, "Oh, I have this." general uh, recogn- computer vision recognition model, you're trying to basically now look at medical image data and identify aneurysms. You know, that requires, unfortunately, human intelligence to go in there and bring in the new data set, label the data set, do the transfer learning. Now, of course, you could still use the same techniques of deep learning. You could you can still use the same technology. But what was the, who knew how to do that? The machine didn't know how to do that. That's the limit of intelligence, right? If the machine knew how to do that, we wouldn't have to do it. That's the U layer, right? And of course, the top layer above that is the W layer, which is wisdom, which is knowing why and how to do certain things. That you might think of that as, say, common sense, which is which is, you know, um, I, the classic example I always give is you don't a three-year-old knows that you know if you put water in a cup and they turn the cup upside down, the water's going to spill out. I mean, they've probably figured that out when they were a toddler, you know, playing with, uh, you know, gravity and things like that. You don't have to teach, you know, if you ask the kid, okay, if I put water in this shoe, in this boot, and I turn the boot upside down, what will happen to the water? 
you know, the, the, the human kid, will, a three-year-old would be like, I don't know, maybe don't, they'll know. The water will spill out. You, a machine, oh, there you go. A machine doesn't have that same sort of common sense. It doesn't know that, uh, you know, a cup is a kind of vessel. A vessel contains a, a solid or a liquid and then the, the gravity. And, and a human doesn't even have to go through that reasoning process. Um, they don't have to, um, you know, they don't have to go through a logic tree. They, we just understand that our brains are so amazing that if I put water, if I just decided to go out and put water in a pumpkin and I turned that you would know that the pumpkin one would hold the water, at least for some amount of time. And if I turned the pumpkin upside down, if it has a hole on the top of it, if it's, if it's a hollowed out pumpkin, that the water will come out. I don't need to be retrained on that. This is why deep learning as gray as it is, is limited. And we don't have general a general answer to to these more complicated forms of learning, which is why we're still trying to, you know, go down this path of trying to figure out AGI. And there's a good question as to whether or not we'll be there, but that's a whole other thing. So maybe Kathleen, you should to you know add to any of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to that voice assistant benchmark that I talked about, I, uh, we realized very quickly, and I mean we had known this before, but it's just a, a great, you know, uh, representation as well that people could understand this as well when we were asking questions, that we are reaching those limits with common sense, machine reasoning. We don't have that. And so deep learning, as Ron mentioned, has been incredible. And it's provided us with incredible advancements in AI, uh, you know, helped, helped bring this latest wave of AI about, um, for people familiar with AI, they know that we've been through two previous winters before, which is just a period of decline in investment and adoption of AI. And so uh, deep learning is incredible, but no, it's not the end. And we need to really now get to that common sense and machine reasoning to continue to really push forward with the possibilities of what we can do. And until we have that, we're going to see, you know, limitations, like Ron said, where we're really kind of maxing out on what we can do right now. So no AI winter by deep learning. <laughs> um, excellent conversation, guys. Thank you so much, Kathleen, Ron. Uh, make sure to check the podcast swap or on AI Today and hear yours truly on AI Today uh, with in a conversation with Kathleen and Ron. Uh, good luck, uh, guys, with Cognolytica and AI Today. An absolute pleasure and um, hope to have you in the future as well. Yeah, thank you for having us on the podcast. We really enjoyed it. We, we probably could go for another few hours. So <laughs> we will. Yeah, we talking to you. Stay tuned for another episode. <laughs> That's all, folks. Thank you for listening and hope you had the AI fun promised. Don't be a stranger. Leave a review if you like what you listen. There's more AI fun aligned for you this fall. Until the next time, take care.